you can take reinforcement learning from an AI standpoint, or you can take reinforcement from a statistics standpoint. So, you know, people would probably be familiar with things like Optimizely uh, that use bandit algorithms for optimization. And so there, that's one of our favorite techniques is actually a Bayesian bandit style reinforcement learning. And the reason for that is that it just works with very little overhead, as opposed to building, you know, these big complex machine learning models where anything can happen. And yes, you can probably do a lot better in a very fixed use case, but if you have broad use cases and lots of different variables changing, it's a different story. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions so you can take your project to the next level. Simplify your life with Linode's Linux VMs to develop, deploy, and scale your applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for our listeners. You can find all the details at linode.com changelog, or if you're not at your desk, just text changelog to 474747 and get instant access to that 100 bucks. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use that $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com changelog and click on the Create Free Account button to get started, or just text changelog to 474747. Get started today on Linode. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast that makes artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelog.com slash community, and follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. Well, welcome to another episode of Practical AI. This is Daniel Whitenack. I am a data scientist with SIL International, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Chris Benson, who is a principal emerging technology strategist at Lockheed Martin. How are you doing, Chris? I am doing very well, Daniel, enjoying this beautiful fall weather, and uh, how's it going with you? Going good. It's a busy week. There's a uh, conference paper deadline tomorrow that I'm trying to meet. So last night, and I'm guessing tonight will be a little bit restless uh, for me. <laughs> I'll bet. I mean, has anyone out there ever actually submitted their conference paper before like those, like those final moments? Actual yeah. day of? Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, when you have to make like three LaTeX tables that like each one, you know, the tweaking of those adds like each one adds like a day or something. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm terrible about that. I'm like, uh, yeah. yeah. Coming down to the final hours. Yep. But it's a good time. I enjoy it. And we're uh, collaborating with some interesting people. So it's, it's good to do that and good exercise to kind of organize all your thoughts into that paper format. It's, it's kind of uh, a good, but um, yeah, what's going on in, in your world? 
I am actually trying to do as little AI as possible right now. Uh, oh, the weather okay. has been just too nice outside. And if I even yeah. look at my laptop, my wife gives me a scathing look like, you idiot. <laughs> what, what are you Why doing? Are we not look, like hiking? Or... Exactly. Look outside yeah. the window. Yeah, I spent most yeah. AI. So we're trying to get some, some outdoor time in when we're not working right now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, Chris, I don't know if you remember, actually, this is kind of a long story, but part of the reason why this podcast exists is because I met our editors. I met them at GopherCon. I believe it was in 2016. So I, I do a l little bit of Go programming, as our listeners probably know. And I met Adam Stachowiak. And actually, I think it, just, it was just Adam there, who is uh, editor-in-chief at the Changelog. And that's actually what got us started talking about doing a, an AI podcast. Well, at that same conference, I met our guests today and have been following their company for some time and using some of the packages that they've open sourced and they're just doing really cool stuff. And so today we're joined by uh, Hamish Ogilvy, who is a founder at Sajari, talking to us all the way from uh, Australia, I believe. How you doing, Hamish? I'm good. I'm in San Francisco, though. I'm not. Oh, uh, really? Did you yeah. move? I did. I did. Okay. I had to move across. Yeah, we ended yeah. up with my. Okay. So, from our perspective, it's 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 earlier today rather than tomorrow. That's where right. You are. There yeah. you go. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Not Tuesday yet. So is yeah. the is the whole company now in San Francisco? No, most of our guys are in Sydney still. We have a few people in Vietnam, New York, Ohio, and then there's a few people here in, in the Bay Area as well. Yeah, so were you all doing kind of remote workers before it was cool and necessary to do remote workers now in this world? I'd like to say we were, but uh -huh. uh, we weren't. We were actually our engineering we always had in one location which was in sydney and i was uh -huh. probably the exception to the rule but um uh -huh. i came across to build our team up in the us but we always had an in-house like no remote engineers because some of the stuff that we do is so complicated that we often fill whiteboards and argue yeah. for two hours at a time before we make a plan to do anything and so covid's been really interesting because that's kind of flipped everything and everybody's working from home although it's not too bad in in sydney at the moment the guys still get into the office but yeah, yeah we've we've talking about reducing office space and everyone's working remote so it's it's definitely a different world yeah i would say there's a lot of things about working remote that can be really efficient but that sort of like trying to get a new effort underway and that like brainstorming and whiteboard time it's pretty incredible when when you're in person and i'm not sure that i've experienced anything of that sort of nature in, in a remote setting there's a business opportunity right there yeah i'm sure there's like virtual like uh, remote team whiteboarding that's actually really amazingly <laughs> wonderful which pardoning yeah. you know those that are already in that space i i haven't experienced it either you know i think i have to have some type of special surface to yeah. write on or something because then otherwise drawing with my mouse it just looked like something a four-year-old would draw or something <laughs> <laughs> Even if you go past that, you've still got time changes and stuff for us as well, though. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. That's rough. Yeah, it's brutal, whichever way you look at it. But yeah. it's definitely not solved, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah. um, as interesting as that topic is, I think you and I have talked a bit about what you're doing at Sajari and, and some of your work there. But I actually don't know your kind of personal background and how you got into this space and 
you know, eventually ended up founding Sajari. So maybe you could give us a little bit of that story. Yeah, it's, um, I'll try to give you the short version because it's, pr- it's probably a long story, but my background was actually originally in physics. I got a PhD in physics. Ah, and Score used another to... one for the physicists. No we, kidding. Yeah. You guys are just we all over a, the place. Yeah, we have a few on oh. here occasionally. <laughs> yeah. We're broken out and physicists have gone to AI. What's going on with that? I know, it's a, it's a common oh. path. It's, it's, it's funny, but uh, I was one of the, the rare few when I first kind of made that path into the space. And then now I think the university's got full programs set up around transitioning people down that, that line. But yeah, so I did PhD in physics, used to design lasers. Um, so oh, some cool. of my lasers are still used for surgery and skin treatments and, and other things. But I shift out into analytics worked in analytics for probably four or five years and then jumped out to start the business. So yeah, different route. Maybe you could just, uh, I, cause I'm interested in kind of the backstory of, of Sajari a bit, um, but maybe before we get into that, maybe you could just say kind of in a short blurb what Sajari is, what it's trying to do. Yeah, so we're basically trying to offer machine learning based search as a service, but we want it to be really, really fast. And so, I guess one of the trade-offs that people make is speed for accuracy. So we're trying to kind of mesh the two of those things together in in a short way. Cool. Yeah. And how did that idea, how did the sort of um, AI and search, but also the performance side of that, how did that kind of creep up as something that you thought was a space that you wanted to live in? Yeah, so it's really interesting, but search kind of interested me even back during my PhD because I was doing something really obscure that was very difficult to find literature on. And you'd, you'd go to search for things and type in, you know, if you typed in two keywords, you get the phone book. If you type in three, you get very, very few results. You type in four words, you get nothing. And that's just the space because it was very small. And it, it always seemed really bizarre to me because I'd written a bunch of papers. I'd, I had, you know, enormous volumes of context in, in text that I'd actually written. And yet I couldn't use that to actually search and find something on context. And so that kind of sparked my brain, I guess you would say, because it always seemed like we should be able to search more conceptually. And then the university actually spun out some of the research that I was doing during my PhD into a company. And one of the first things that they did was an IP literature search. And then the pattern emerged all over again. The the IP search company was basically, they had a, um, a spreadsheet and they said, you keep filling it up with queries until you keep getting the same results. And so it just looking at that was kind of crazy. And so fast forward, I, I kind of ticked along in the background and chatted to, to some friends about it and um, played around in the background and couldn't really get any of the technology out there to do what we wanted to do and kind of saw that there was this convergence of, you know, machine learning was starting to come up. Search technology was basically mostly built from around the nineties. It hadn't, changed too much in approach. It's changed a lot uh, more recently, but you could kind of see that there was this convergence of smart machine learning and information retrieval. And so we kind of, we jumped on that train and been following it ever since. I think the fast side of things, uh, when we were talking previously about making things really fast, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was a study a few years ago, Amazon, they intentionally added blocks of 100 milliseconds delay in their e-commerce queries and saw a drop of 1% of revenue for every 100 milliseconds delay they introduced. 
I think Google did the same thing and saw a 20% drop in click-through rates and things like that. So there's this huge correlation between speed and performance. But then, you know, a lot of the things that you do in AI can be quite hard to make performant. And so there's just these interesting challenges where you're trying to balance. That's definitely true. <laughs> and it's mm. like, you'll read about this cool model and you want to make it work, but then you read about like, oh, how do you make it performant? Oh, you like get like, this like GPU server. Take the smarts that, out. Yeah, that like <laughs> yeah. just like brute force it, which not all of us have the have the capability to do. Maybe some fortunate people do. Yeah. So as we kind of get going here, and and I know Daniel's known you for a while, but I'm kind of as I'm learning as a, as a novice here, is, like can you differentiate a little bit more uh, or or talk about kind of the specific areas that you're addressing versus a Google? So like um you know with obviously. AI being a topic that's in search kind of broadly at this point, yep. what areas are you guys really addressing and you know, how does that differentiate you from the others that are out there? Yeah, so interestingly, we jumped into site search around 2015 when we were first kicking things off. And the reason that we, we did that was because Google was talking about getting out of site search. And I don't mean searching the public web, but I mean searching your, you know, your internal website, for right. instance. And so they retracted back and sunsetted the Google search appliances, those bright yellow boxes that people used to put in their, in their data centers. What a different world it is. But uh, they also got rid of their, their product where they were doing that as a service and basically said you could use ad supported or find another product basically. And so we saw an opportunity there and it was a, it was a good test bed to start in because all of the data was public already. So you didn't have security implications and privacy. So it was kind of an easy area to get started. And, and I've done so much in the background in um, marketing analytics and site tagging and things like that, that we saw that we could basically automate that, that entire workflow. And so that was the origins of the company. And then now as we move forward, we're kind of going where the transactional value of search is highest, which is e-commerce search, where you're just seeing that you can, you know, you make small changes and they mean millions of dollars and you can measure it, um, which is very different to searching a, a website where people, they, they don't care as much if you know what I mean. I'm kind of curious on the site search side of, of things in terms of how big and how many like results a site needs to have to like really like until this really starts becoming a problem. And I was wondering if that's at all related to as well, like, you can put in a lot of design work in terms of making your site easy to navigate, but it seems like you're, if you're able to search something and have it come up sort of instantly and it, it was a good result, then it also maybe reduces the burden there. So um, could you talk to that a little bit in terms of like the scale that we're talking about and sort of when this type of thing becomes a really big problem? Yeah, I mean, I think interesting because remember websites back in the day had these enormous navigational structures and, you know, there's 500 links on a page and then now you go to sites and there's basically nothing. And so we've had this interesting move where everything's gone to mobile and people have an expectation that they can just search and find what they want. And so you find that you don't need that much content before it actually becomes useful. And the second aspect to this is that in user testing, we've actually had customers that have come to us and they said in user testing, the first thing people do if there's a search icon, they go to the search icon. They don't want to be bothered 
you know, going through five different nested navigation structures to find what they want if there's a search box there, but it has to work. I was just going to say, I've noticed that um, especially like I will go through other uh, other avenues myself, but I do notice like my wife, she goes to the search box for absolutely everything. I mean, like everything uh, yep. and like almost yep. doesn't use navigation other than that. And that's user testing showing that more yeah. and more and more. It's just becoming a, a base level expectation, which is, is kind of interesting. But the other side to that is that you actually get people's intent. So we talk about it in terms of intent analytics, but like a cable TV company that's a customer, for instance, cancel is their biggest search. And when people search for cancel, they may happen to know their account ID so they can automatically do things like feed retention programs. You can't do these things as easily as if people are navigating around because you don't know um, specifically what their intention is, but if they type it in, you got a pretty good idea that you know what it is. And so the other thing that we see is that if you have searches that are by far and away bigger than anything else, then they probably should be navigation components. 